Schmid is a global sustainability advisor who has worked in 30 countries on four continents with 70 plus organizations of all shapes and sizes. She has a deep passion for creating opportunities and win-wins across the social, environmental, and economic spheres. Many of her experiences are highlighted in the new book, The Sustainability Puzzle, how systems thinking, climate action, circularity, and social transformation can improve health, wealth, and well-being for all. Alice Schmidt, welcome to One Planet and Future Cities podcast. Hello, Mia. Thank you so much for inviting me. Tell us a little bit about your journey. When did you realize you wanted to use your business experience and energy to try to make the world a better place? I know it sounds a bit cheesy, but I actually was into sort of environmental protection, recycling clubs, etc. already when I was a child. And I actually founded yeah, an environmental protection club, a social sort of justice club. And, and so that was with me early on. But then I did go down the much more traditional, conventional business journey. And it wasn't until I had my first job with a fast moving consumer goods company and two, in fact, so Coca-Cola was one and then there was another one focusing on sort of household uh, wear and both times I wasn't too sure if me now investing all my energy and skills into selling more of a product that is nice to have but perhaps not absolutely essential such as you know a carbonated soft drink or a dishwashing detergent was really how I wanted to spend my future and I was trying to see how I could use this sort of communications, marketing, influencing skill set for selling, so to speak, something that really made a difference socially and also environmentally. And that's how I also got working with the United Nations, who were basically offering a product, if you want to call call it that, which was much closer to my heart. And I I didn't want to just help a big company make more money by selling a lot of stuff that people may not need, but actually trying to influence government and other stakeholders into adopting policies, products, essentially, that would really make the world a better place. Yeah, we definitely don't need more stuff that we don't need. We need to focus on the things that we do need and the essentials. And so it's so great that you've been able to combine your passion with your purpose. I was just wondering because you, it's really quite impressive as your work has taken you around the world, leading organizations. You also have that business element. So how do you prioritize the things and the changes that you like to make happen? Oh, that's a big question. I mean, in terms of prioritizing changes, I think almost everything is important. If you start with the sustainable development goals, right? I mean, they are very all-encompassing and they're not all-encompassing for some people enough, but they are very broad. And I think all of this is important. For me personally, having worked on some of these issues like health, education, but also inclusive business, sustainable supply chains, I realized that for me personally, where I can add the most value, I think, is in providing this bigger picture perspective, right? Because I combine business background and experience in quite a few different countries and continents and quite a lot of industrial sectors, as well as sectors of society, of policy. And I'm sort of able to translate sometimes between different stakeholder groups. And I try to make sure that nothing falls between the cracks. Yeah. So for me, the prioritization is really of this bigger picture. And I, I think it's impossible to, to say otherwise, right? Because whether it's maximizing educational benefits for children or healthcare for all or a green environment is impossible to decide. But of course, we do know is that some of these 
goals are at odds with each other. So um, lifting a lot of people out of poverty necessarily also means that they will consume and produce more, right? They will demand more goods and services. And that, as we know, isn't great in terms of material impact. Having said that, it is, of course, a very fundamental human right. So some of these challenges and trade-offs I try to really focus on. And that big picture element is something that you really discuss in depth with your book, The Sustainability Puzzle. Explain to us what that is and how do the different pieces of the puzzle work together? Well, yeah, uh, thank you. I mean, the book does bring together all these different insights and and experiences that both uh, my co-author, Claudia Winkler, and me have had over the years. And we come from quite different backgrounds. So we tried to make it something that is accessible to everyone who comes to sustainability, perhaps not for the first time, but who hasn't really grappled with the topic in depth. What's very important is that we define sustainability, both in terms of social and in terms of environmental sustainability and of course economic sustainability as well sometimes this is called the triple bottom line and what we're saying is that a lot of the solutions already exist we know what needs to happen in terms of climate action in terms of a circular economy in terms of social justice in terms of making technology a tool that really benefits people rather than benefiting just certain companies we know what sustainable business needs to look like but we also know that if you don't zoom out before you then zoom in on specific solutions, you're actually at risk of creating more problems than you saw. And I mean, just to give one example, electric mobility is an important part of the puzzle. It's certainly a part of the solution. But if your energy mix is such that this electric car is then powered by dirty energy, by fossil fuels, that's not a great idea. So it's really also about overcoming a sectoral divides, right? Because we are so specialized in today's world that science has advanced so much that we are actually able to dig extremely deep, understand every little detail of one problem. But this also means that we really in our silos, in our sectors, and we need to break outside the silos. We need, really need to collaborate with an open mind. Just zooming out before we then zooming in on, on those solutions that already exist is, is a key aspect of that. So the puzzle pieces, I mean, of course, they aren't comprehensive, but we've defined them in sort of six easily understandable pieces, climate action, circular economy, social justice, ethical technology, sustainable business, and importantly, also responsible consumption, because we're all consumers and we all want to contribute. And sometimes it's very hard for consumers to know what to do. So we really try, we've developed it in a very sort of accessible manner with also some graphs that summarize what everyone can do, trying to bring in lots of examples and personal experiences and using a very sort of non-technical, non-academic language. But at the same time, we have about 300 footnotes because we clearly wanted this to be very, very evidence-based. And everyone who wants to dig deeper is invited to, and I've, I've had feedback from readers saying that they really appreciate all this guidance then on where to go to dig deeper because sustainability is such a huge topic that it's impossible to know, to you know, to fully understand every aspect of it. And some people might be experts in the circular economy, but they may know less about climate action and the other way around. So it's kind of trying to capture all of this interest and also this passion by people to make a change, make a difference. Perhaps you could share some of this big picture thinking in relation to the city. We're living in the century of the city. Uh, this decade is going to be hugely transformational if we can make that leap forward that we need to make. And cities are really the main drivers, as you know, of creativity and innovation, but also account for global carbon dioxide emissions. So many things we have to work on. So what do you think the cities of the future are going to look like in terms of energy as well as transport, waste management, food, pollution? 
Yeah, no, this is a hugely important topic, of course. And cities are places of extremes, right? They bring in all these people, they bring in all this waste. It's all about pollution, but at the same time, they are places, hubs of opportunity. And so if you want to understand what the world's biggest problems are, just look to any city. We will see them, but we will also see the amazing possibilities we have. I mean, cities are talent hubs. Cities concentrate wealth, of course. Sometimes people talk about the urban advantage even, right, when it comes to international development so that people living in cities are healthier and, and wealthier and better educated. That's true to an extent, not always, by the way. The city of the future that I envisage is clearly a very green city. It's a city where we don't have individual transport, where we have only public transport. It's a city where people walk, where people ride bicycles, where we hear birds, where we use natural methods of keeping temperatures low. It's also a place where people, even though cities, of course, are big, people feel more of this communal identity than they perhaps do so now, living in sort of concrete jungles. And I also think that cities perhaps more than now are providing a continuum to the countryside. They will continue to see large concentrations of people, but they also will be connected more to what's happening in the countryside in terms of agriculture. Of course, urban gardening will be a feature much more so than it is today of cities. I think power clearly will be coming from renewable sources. I'd like to mention also that the IPCC, the International Panel on Climate Change, the UN Climate Council, so to speak, is actually seeing cities, sustainable cities, as the one beacon of hope when it comes to sustainability in, in his recent report just a couple of weeks ago that looked at impacts. We saw that impacts are perhaps even harder to, to adjust to. Resilience is harder to create than we actually thought, but the one big opportunity really is in cities. And so I really think we need to harness that. A lot of initiatives are have picked that up, but I think much more needs to happen. And I love writing. And one of the things I recently have been writing more about is this connection between health and cities because health is so fundamental to us and perhaps more than before now with the pandemic i think what's very important to remember is that we're not saving the planet right we're not saving the environment yes we can protect it but we don't do this for the environment's sake or for the planet's sake we do this for our very own sake for our own to maximize basically our health wealth and well-being and for the longest time, not living in cities so much, actually, we have been able to do that by using and almost abusing the resources that the planet provides. But we've now come to a point where our own behavior is actually meant that planet cannot provide for us in the same way that it used to. And so it's really high time we recognize this fundamental link between health, wealth and well-being and say environmental protection. Yes, I liked what you said about sustainable cities. And that, that is, I mean, I think that the covenant of mayors and, and so many certain sterling examples of where cities are kind of the impetus. And if we could all just use that as a model, we can get there. And another area which you, of course, have a deep knowledge of is the private sector. So how important are public-private partnerships, do you think, to help us reach net zero and to become energy efficient? How can decarbonization targets be met without close collaboration of the private sector and what are some good models or companies that you are giving good examples in terms of the future of the circular economy? 
The private sector clearly is an important part of the problem, but it's also an essential part of the solution. And I think these days you wouldn't find that many people arguing against public-private collaboration. So I think it's kind of quite well known that in order to solve the world's biggest problems, many of which are wicked problems, you can't, which actually can't just be solved, you can address them somehow. But if they were easy, they would be uh, solved already. So we all need to work together that's i think pretty clear the private sector with audiences or in stakeholder groups such as the un ngos civil society is often seen as this sort of alien beast almost right everybody knows my work with ngos i see that people know they need to work with the private sector but it's often not quite understood what the private sector actually is and of course the private sector needs to be broken down into the large multinationals which are hugely powerful whose turnovers might be larger than entire countries' GDPs, or their staff sizes might be larger than entire countries' population. I'm just thinking of Walmart with 2 million employees, for example. And so this power of the multinationals, of large multinationals, also vis-a-vis governments, and in terms of making it harder for governments to regulate them, is clearly something that needs to be addressed. Yeah, Taxation, right, is something that these large companies sometimes quite successfully evade in often very legal ways. And if they were paying the same share, the same sort of fair share in taxes that individuals or small companies pay, we would be in a totally different situation in terms of having money available to address those large social environmental problems we're facing in the world. Now, this is one aspect of the private sector, and it accounts for only, say, maybe 1%. And then most of the rest are micro, small or medium-sized enterprises, some of which actually are small impact businesses that are for profit, that are profit-oriented, but who find, or but for whom creating a social impact or an environmental impact is as important as turning a profit. And so this is a completely different group. And I think it's important to understand these different aspects of the private sector. And of course, you have many companies in between, many of whom are also private businesses and often family-owned businesses that are not at the stock exchange. And they have totally different interests in terms of longevity, in terms of long-term thinking. So this long-term versus short-term thinking is also something thing distinguishes the private sector from other groups. And so when it comes, for example, to reach net zero, which of course is a declared goal and we need decarbonization, we need the big players that the big companies that account for the largest share of greenhouse gases to want to do something, to take very serious steps, much more so than they have been doing before. We also need governments, regulators to be in a position to, on the one hand, set all these laws and policies, but then also also make sure that they actually followed. And this is why this power relationship is so important. And in these sort of partnerships, it's really important to always bring also in the voice of the people, civil society. And I think it can't go without one company, because you asked about companies that perhaps can set an example. I mean, I, I like the Danish company Ørsted, which used to generate its business entirely from fossil fuels, so oil, coal, and gas. But then in the last 10 years or so, completely changed its 
business model towards renewables and is actually very, very successful, very financially successful with that. And I think they can serve as a role model for other companies because in the end, there are a lot of business models which just aren't sustainable. So an oil company, I'm sorry, isn't sustainable. It's not fit for the future if unless it really changes its business model. The same actually goes for companies that produce cheap consumer products, which are designed to break easily after just a few uses. One company that I love to speak about is Patagonia, this famous outdoor brand, again, who is very successful financially, but much earlier than others. So for years has already been really thinking through what sustainability means and what circularity means. has been very transparent also about its challenges. I feel often that we recognize sustainable companies or truly sustainable companies or those that are at least really committed by looking for how transparent they are. And so Patagonia really is thinking, how can we make our products last for very long? They're telling consumers not to buy their products. There was a very famous ad in the New York Times, I think 10, 12 years ago already, which was titled, don't buy this jacket. And then it explained actually what the environmental footprint is of this jacket, right? And said, only buy this if you really, really need it. This is very much advanced thinking, of course. And today they're taking, they're actually paying people to hand in their used Patagonia gear and they're creating a business model out of that as well. So it's really companies that are very much ahead that we must look to, not just companies companies that are very vocal about rather small incremental changes that they've been making. I just want to say it's a really important point that it's, it's so many businesses are not truly sustainable because the true cost is being subsidized and it has to be paid at some stage. So the business model needs to be adjusted for it to be actually even a, a true capitalist evaluation of the business. This is an excellent point, Mia. Thank you. I think to this day, we are not internalizing costs. Yeah, We're treating costs that accrue through ill health, pollution, global warming. We just externalize these costs and we pretend they're separate. And businesses, for the most part, are not yet asked to take responsibility for that. And that really has to change. And also, I mean, you mentioned subsidies. We're spending 450 billion dollars per year to subsidize fossil fuels i mean think about it right and at the same time we take pride in spending like a tenth of that on renewables so there's something really quite wrong and i think this is something also that a lot of people aren't aware of so this internalization of what's currently thought of as external costs is absolutely necessary and we need businesses to take responsibility for their impact social and environmental across the entire value chain so sustainable goals like renewable energy are often seen as too expensive. So how do you either convince these private corporations or stakeholders to believe that they are a good financial investment? Or how do you propose making sustainable goals less expensive? Well, I think to an extent, that's exactly what we're talking about, right? It needs this interplay between private companies, corporations, particularly large ones, and regulators who make sure that the social damage that's created in the process of selling a good gets a price tag and that it's the company or even also the, to an extent the consumers that pay for that. And changing the business model, of course, is hard. It's a great risk that companies need to take. We talked a bit about the short-termism, right? Which, of course, is an issue there. And that's also why sometimes smaller companies, family-owned companies that haven't got to deal with the pressures of shareholders being listed on the stock exchange, find easier to address. And in the end, it's about communicating also the win-win-wins 
in our book, we call it multi-solving. Other people call it multi-solving. But I like to make it clear that by, for example, uh, switching to renewable energy, we're also creating jobs and we are creating better air and thereby better health. And all of that is something that needs to be communicated even more and even better by all stakeholders. And of course, the current geopolitical crisis, the Russian or Putin's war in, in Ukraine is devastating, but it could just be, because you mentioned energy, that the sort of the last straw we needed to, at least in Europe, withdraw much more from fossil fuels towards renewables. Yeah, we knew that there was an important climate argument for that, but now we have this very strong geopolitical argument as well. So that might be one beacon of hope there. Oh, definitely. One doesn't ever like to think in terms of silver linings and terms of war and casualties and what is really a tragedy, but it has motivated people to work faster. And sometimes we need that looming disaster coming our way to think seriously. So tell me in contrast, as you talk about working within companies or evaluating value chains and then working with NGOs and you've worked in Africa, tell us about some of those organizations you worked with and what you learned from those experiences and how their organizations capacity differed? So it's true. I mean, I have worked with very different types of organizations, right? We already spoke about large businesses, small businesses, impact-oriented businesses, business in very poor countries, businesses in super rich countries. And then there are many other types of institutions, right? So I've worked with the UN, what I learned, and that was actually quite early on in my career. With the UN, of course, I mean, they're a political beast as much as technical agencies, right? So I worked, for example, with UNESCO, that's the organization whose mission is to improve education, science, culture, and they are technical experts. There, you don't obviously don't have this profit motivation, but you're still always concerned about having sufficient money for your projects. But what's beautiful about working with the UN is that you're quite close to governments, and in many countries, you're really trusted by governments. So they they listen to your advice, and then together you try to improve policies. Like in this case, it was education, but it can be many other types of policies as well. And then I've worked quite a lot with NGOs. With NGOs, I think one needs to know that they're tiny NGOs and and in many countries, I'm just thinking of Malawi or Cambodia, I mean, you have hundreds of thousands of NGOs, right? But then you also have the large international NGOs. And the large international NGOs, I mean, like Save the Children, World Vision, Doctors Without Borders. I mean, there are so many, Plan International. And some of them actually function a bit like corporates, right? So they're better resourced, very clearly structured. They have a lot of internal policies. Sometimes these days, many of them also heavily invest in, in communication right almost causing a bit of competition what i think they have in common with the small ngos and, and with un also is that they often bring together really amazing technical experts so people that really understand issues in all their nuances that have seen realities on the ground whether it's in africa or asia or anywhere else they also are able to really speak the voice of people and amplify the voice of people and in big contrast to UN organizations, right? United Nations organizations, they're not so politically driven, right? They might be getting some money from governments, but still their job is really to speak out against issues, against problems, to criticize governments also. But some are very, very vocal, and that's also what's needed. It's again sort of this interplay. I've also worked with, with the World Bank, with even the African Union, and right now I work a lot with the European Commission. And I would say that I work with the people in Brussels that look at international partnerships, again, looking at sustainable development 
development, making that a reality in many of the poorer countries, many of the poorer partner countries of the European Union. It, it's really hard to speak of one organization because you have the people in headquarters that are technical experts on, say, health or private sector development or the environment or circularity. And they always have this political consideration in mind as well. But they have to think global or at least regional. And then they have their colleagues in the delegations in countries and their offices in countries who are much more focused on concrete issues, who are much more removed from the big global policies. And they really have to grapple with realities on the ground. And of course, this also includes political realities on the ground. And I mean, for me, working in personally working with NGOs, for example, in Africa, because you've mentioned Africa, was an, a very amazing experience. When I sort of started in Africa, it was shortly after the, the war in Liberia and Sierra Leone in West Africa. And just seeing what that meant, right, in terms of even being able to move in terms of putting on electricity or not, in terms of security, violence, but also in terms of beauty, what it brings to people, the many programs that are put in place, that the many people that are also willing to work long term under very, very hard conditions was amazing. And, and I've always cherished my field trips for bringing me back to the ground. So whatever sort of problems I thought I was having living in a well-off part of a rich country, these problems were very easily brought to pale against the very real issues that I was seeing. And, and these days, actually, I make a very conscious decision to not travel to these countries so much anymore, just because I can't really justify that from a climate perspective. And I also think there's so many highly qualified locals, nationals that should be giving these jobs and that I might have been doing in the past, for example, doing assessment of stakeholders in the health sector and, and then traveling from one place to another is great, but it's much more efficient and often also effective for someone who is placed locally to do that. I was curious, and I know that it, it takes a lot to say, oh, I'm not going to travel to have someone local do it. It's an important decision to make that the locals is on the ground there, but you must have observed, it feels like we should be able to learn a lot more from developing countries where or rural communities where the average person, because this is something you really discussed in the sustainable puzzle, the average person really knows how the different pieces of the puzzle work together because they know because they know where their water comes from. They actually see they can't get rid of their waste. It's right there. So I think that we have a lot to learn from that. If we were able to see and not put out of sight, out of mind, the way we are in, you know, richer countries, we'd solve this a lot faster because it would be right there in our face. But on the other side of it, they don't have as many resources to make the mm. transformation. Yeah, I mean, we really live in this almost artificial world sometimes, right? Particularly, I'm based in Europe, and actually we are a minority in global terms. And by the end of the century, Africa, the continent of Africa, which of course consists of 54 countries, yeah, it's not always clear to people, will be home to 4 billion people. So that's as many people as we're seeing in Asia. So this will really change. And you're absolutely right. Many of these people are so familiar with the issues that they also don't run the risk of not zooming out of not seeing the bigger picture just because the bigger picture is them. I also think it's important because we've been working in a sort of developed versus developing rich versus poor sort of frameworks. I don't even dare to say that, you know, a long time ago, we also used first, second and third world. That's clearly not something we should be using anymore, particularly because when it comes to global development, as we understand it today, that involves circular thinking, circular economies, treating nature with respect, climate 
climate action, etc., there are no developed countries. There isn't a single country that has managed to really provide a reasonable standard of living, as well as giving nature and protection of nature and the place it deserves. Yeah, so there are no developed countries. We are all developing countries. I think that's important to think about. And then some indigenous cultures are so far advanced. They might not have as many electronic gadgets as we do, but they know how to build living bridges from trees that are actually just growing and whose roots are channeled in a certain way that this bridge really lasts for decades and centuries and also that it withstands so-called natural catastrophes like floodings or wind, rain. And this is wisdom we have often lost, but I think we can, we can regain that. So there's a, a lot to learn. So to that point, a lot of people in America and Europe think of sustainable living as pushing against the norm of what we know right now. How do you start bridging that gap to having sustainable living, sustainable goals and societal progress in that sense become the norm of how we live today? This is a great keyword here. I mean, societal progress. What is societal progress? I think for the last 50, 70 years, I mean, clearly in the post-World War II period, we have been thinking of economic growth and have been equating that with societal progress. And to an extent, of course, that's right. To an extent, we need this economic growth to lift people out of poverty. But at some point, we've kind of lost the reasoning. We have been following only this economic growth paradigm measured by the, the GDP the gross domestic product and we have forgotten that it measures many things but it doesn't actually measure progress it doesn't measure how healthy people are how educated they are how clean the environment is how safe it is how secure it is and interestingly even Simon Kuznets a guy who, who conceptualized this GDP knew this but it somehow happened and I'm not saying that GDP is a measure that we shouldn't be using it has its values clearly but it shouldn't be the only measure that we are focusing on and there are some countries and some cities also have set alternative goals or additional goals. I feel personally that there was a time around five to 10 years ago when a lot of people were talking about this. There were a lot of initiatives and I feel this has sort of died down a little bit, but it's still there. This Bhutan is still mentioned a lot as a country with an alternative framework to measure progress, namely the gross national happiness, which is very much built on these indicators that cover what I've just said, education and healthcare and housing and security and community. So it, it's clearly also about making people understand that we're not asking anyone to lead a life that's worse than the life that they've been leading before. It's just changing to a much fuller realization of what's actually good for you. And it's a difficult position because who are we to tell people? what's good for them but to the extent we can measure that we can measure burnout rates we can measure mental health issues we can measure addictions to a mobile phone or whatever so it's something where we really need to do quite a lot to transform people's mindsets and in the end understand that sustainability is about making their life better and not worse to development indexes so there's of course gdp gni hdi do you think that there should be a newer different way to measure development since none of these really cover what you're talking about yeah, no, I, I think there should be. And in a way, there is also, right, with the SDGs, because some of the ones that you mentioned, like the HDI, the Human Development Index, of course, was one of the earlier ones, is great, but it is quite limited to health and education and using proxies only and also measure for economic development. The SDGs, but I, I think that's also the challenge, of course, the SDGs are so broad that they also contradict each other to an extent. And that's why it makes it hard. I definitely think, though, that each and every country 
should be working hard to have additional measures that it follows as closely and manages as tightly as it manages the GDP, which means also giving more leverage to the institutions that are responsible for making, say, good health a reality, for making environmental protection, restoration, regeneration a reality. In the end, the money flows also that show what countries prioritize. And it's not just countries, right? It's also businesses that prioritize things like that. And, and generally, I'm often asked also because I, I work with companies to help them or with institutions, not just companies, also with NGOs and movements, for example, climate movements and helping them measure their impact. Of course, these measures which are about social impact, about justice, about the environmental footprint, you, you can track them, but they're a bit harder to track. It's not so straightforward as tracking you know, financial income, for example, or financial product. But it is something where I certainly see hope. I see more and more companies, NGOs, governments actually making these efforts to track such non-financial successes, progress. So you mentioned the SDGs, and as you say, they are broad, but if you could focus on one that's that's quite dear to you. Oh my God, this I think is very hard. I mean, at the moment, I deal with quite a few companies that are really trying to understand how they, with their for-profit remit, can still make a difference, a positive difference, create win-wins for, for the environment society. And their SDG, SDG 12, right, about responsible production and consumption is one that's really dear to my heart. And it's also one about this concept of consumerism, how maybe 30, 40 years ago, no company in its right mind would have produced something that deliberately breaks easily. So that's really changed when we were looking for mass markets to basically sell more products to people that already had everything. And that's really when this trouble started. But the good thing is it only started a few decades ago. So we can actually go forward, move forward into the future, become future fit by remembering how we did things in the past. And there are so many solutions out there. I'm not saying that companies should make no more money. I think they can shift to business models where they produce goods, a bit like Patagonia does, right? That might be high in price, but that are very long lasting and in the end come with much fewer external costs or rather by internalizing them, by internalizing these costs, they become even more competitive than they already are. So that's why SDG 12 is close to my heart. And, And I think there's a lot that also consumers can do by just basically not buying stuff that they don't need that they don't want not taking freebies that they don't need and that's just sort of going to clutter up the homes or workplaces and always invest in quality but it also cannot be up to the consumer to do a phd every time they make a purchase decision and with supply chains being as complex as they are today we really need companies to be very transparent and very clear about what a product entails and there was a very interesting idea i think that came from the minister of the environment i think in germany who proposed that product should come with an indication of how long they will last yeah so not just the product warranty because that would then make it much easier for the consumer to perhaps choose a more expensive product and know it's going to last or if they really really want to say okay i'm deliberately choosing a cheap product but it's not going to last very long and then regulators could also come in and discourage that through incentive schemes so a lot remains to be done in this area when it comes to responsible consumption production and it's also this sdg where the the Addictions are met, where this idea that we want to get more and more people out of poverty, which I subscribe to a thousand percent, links in with the environmental challenges of doing that and the economic need of doing that.
Yeah, so much is made to be disposable and just a few areas that are still so distressing. I think 97% of plastic is manufactured for single use only. I don't know if we're making any progress there. I mean, you may know some of these solutions. The, the textile wastage, as you redress things being put into landfills every year, it's something like 41 billion tons. What's the progress on, on those two subjects? I mean, so textile is a specific one. And you're right. I mean, I think it's one truckload every second that's just thrown away. There are, I think, more and more smaller businesses coming up with very interesting models. I mean, one of my favorites that's not as well known as Patagonia is nudie jeans. And for me, this is a real win-win-win because whenever I bought a pair of jeans, after not that long, they would break. And I, I took them to the tailor to have my jeans fixed. But often I found that paying the tailor for fixing a pair of jeans was almost as expensive as buying a new pair. And so I thought that wouldn't work. And I, I started investing in more and more expensive pairs of jeans and they would still break. And then I discovered nudie jeans. They actually do lifelong repairs for free, which of course means that I'm not going to need to rely on their repair service that much because they from the start produce jeans that are not going to break and yes they're quite expensive when you first buy them but so far i've been really super happy and you, you can just tell that in the end they will save me money as well so this is a, a win from an economic point of view as well as from an environmental circularity point of view i think we were talking about other companies that are also on the right track and, and do we see things improving i think yes we certainly see improvement but it's not fast enough yeah, i think that's very clear some of the Hopefully bigger impact areas of improvement will come from EU regulation like the EU taxonomy that basically provides transparency in terms of what really is sustainable. That's going to make greenwashing more difficult. There is also the reporting guidelines. But of course, this applies only in Europe. I mean, each part of the world needs its own regulations. So regulation can be very important. And it is an important piece of the puzzle, but I don't think that it's fast enough. I I really fear that we are sort of missing this train into the future a little bit unless we really speed up action. I think we can only do that by creating this sort of this more positive narrative, the optimistic, but still quite harsh narrative, making it clear that this is about civilization collapse, potentially. We wouldn't be the first civilization to die out. I mean, that's how our book starts. And I think a lot of people are so much living in their perfect world that they don't see this. And if you have traveled and worked in very, very different parts of the world, which actually constitutes the majority, say rural parts of Africa or Latin America or some parts of Asia, then you realize how fragile all of this is. So I think we shouldn't shy away from using very clear language, but we should also show the, the positives in that. Oh, yes. And I'm glad you brought up the greenwashing because this is this kind of creative accountancy that is very promising, but you have to see how companies are meeting the targets. And even countries, a lot of countries say, oh, we're going to reach these targets, but without a clear plan. I think EU in many ways, as you say, is leading the way as an example for people in other parts of the world, but it's not always absolutely clear how we'll get there. No, and it's not. And I think part of the advances we've seen is by governments and companies actually committing. So they all commit to net zero. They all want to do something. They know also they have to be seen to be doing something. But what we still miss is clear plans on how to get there. And just to give a few examples, there are some really good efforts, like, for example, the Science-Based Target Initiative, which helps 
companies that are willing to set ambitious targets, carbon targets, to sort of test their ambitions and their commitments. And if they really are on track to meet the Paris Climate Agreement goals, to stay below 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming or 2 degrees, then they're able to really, well, they're not certifying this per se, but they are if companies agree to work with them, showing to the world that this company really means business yeah, and actually is serious about that. Because we're talking about targets and 1.5 and 2 degrees. I often talk to students about this and I mention this also in workshops with professionals and very few people actually know what this relates to, this 1.5 degrees increase compared to what? And it's of course pre-industrial times, but I just wanted to highlight this here because it's not so clear for everyone. And of course, we also know that on average, the world has already warmed by more than one degree. My name is Marley Hinchberger, and I am a sustainability and urban planning podcaster for One Plan Podcast. I think that Alice Schmidt brings great knowledge on the interconnectedness of the consumer space and sustainability. Her conversation on responsibilities that fall both on the consumer, but also on companies and how confusing the sustainability space can be is really relatable. There are so many different ways for a product and a company to be sustainable. And as Alice had said, no one wants to do a PhD to figure out what is sustainable. Like many, I find the consumer space is confusing with so many products out there. So having Alice explain what to look out for when shopping and when doing research really helps me shop in a more sustainable way. Alice's knowledge overall about the world, sustainability, and how our society functions is inspiring and shows that progress is taking place. And you can change the minds of governments and companies to move in the right direction towards a more sustainable and healthy world. It makes me mindful of the choices we make and the power we have as citizens to help create a just transition. Now back to the interview. Greenwashing. So companies and other institutions pretending to be much greener, much more sustainable than they are, is a real growing phenomenon. It goes very clearly together with this growing interest by stakeholders, by consumers, by employees, by governments, just by everyone really in making the world a better place and then being more sustainable. And many companies in particular are trying to take the easy route by basically just communicating about sustainability. And you, you find this in many companies, the function for sustainability. So sustainability teams are still embedded in the marketing or public relations or communications department. And that already tells you how a company approaches sustainability. Whereas in companies, is where this is really top zero priority or it's in the innovation department that's sort of a different story so often this is about companies having really understood the importance of sustainability for their core business and companies that see sustainability only as sort of nice ads and that's a shame because i mean the un actually calculated that there's a 12 trillion us dollar opportunity in realizing sustainable development and a lot of companies are going there but then the companies that are not many of them are greenwashing some more green Greenwashing, some are actually also social washing, woke washing, as it's sometimes called. They pretend to be more diverse, more interested in helping marginalized people than they actually are. Greenwashing now comes in, in many shapes and forms. There are companies that basically just don't tell the truth, but there are also companies that have one product in a large product portfolio that might be wonderfully sustainable and organic. And then they use this one product in their communication and leaving aside all the rest. There are companies that talk 
about commitments as if they had been achieved already or companies that suggest that something is carbon neutral or climate friendly or they use many 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 keywords when the product is not at all i think also what's important is buying something can never be sustainable buying more of something can never be sustainable and a lot of companies suggest that by buying their product whether it's a beer or a shirt or whatever is an act of sustainability and you're actually helping the environment and you can't that's not possible because this product too even if it's very sustainable compared to to its competition still has a footprint in terms of transport in terms of packaging etc and another quite common form of greenwashing is when companies suggest that everything they do is carbon neutral when really this only affects one product or one part of the supply chain yeah that's very often when you dig deeper you find that they're calculating the footprint of their direct emissions for example of one one product or one part of the business and then they're getting certification for that which is wonderful they're paying basically to compensate for those emissions of a small part of the business and then they advertise it as if it was concerning their entire business and on the compensation of course this is an important piece of the puzzle too so investing in natural or technological ways of carbon removal so in practice this can mean restoration of forests protecting forests but it can also mean technological methods like direct air capture so basically sucking the co2 or greenhouse gases out of the air that exists to an extent and it's fine to invest in into such systems but this can't replace actually reducing your own emissions as a company and i'm talking about greenhouse gas emissions but of course the same is true for your water footprint or many other environmental aspects so the idea companies can only claim they're really sustainable if they first track their greenhouse gas footprint so know how much they actually responsible for along their entire value chain and then come up with good plans, good ways of actually reducing this and only use offsetting, sort of investing in those carbon removal projects for a relatively small part of the emissions. Some people say 10% is okay. So the goal can never be to just pay your way out of responsibility. And I think that's quite important. So I'm aware I have quite a strict understanding of greenwashing and there are many other ways. One to mention that consumers feel easily tricked by are the labels. So we have over 400 sustainability labels you can include fair trade or energy saving and many of these are actually excellent labels with sophisticated certification processes behind them but then because there's so many of them and because you don't want consumers to do a phd every time they buy something it's very hard for consumers to really understand what's behind them so fair trade is quite a well-known one a lot of people would know quite a lot about it but for all the rest that knowledge is actually not very widespread some companies starbucks amazon for example produce their own labels that have no external independent certification process behind them and apply that to a given product or to a given process so then you click on the amazon website and you find this label there and it says green stamp something and you go like oh okay so i'm doing something good by making this purchase now when you're not at all and when there is no justified way for arguing that this is more sustainable than a conventional purchase but i think this greenwashing is a topic that we'll we'll be hearing about more and more in in the future and where also regulation is helping to give guidance to companies on what to do and what not to do.
I think that the labeling certainly is complex. I don't think that because certain certification boards have come under scrutiny, it's expensive, it's costly. And, and obviously some people who qualify for it are better players than others. Technology is such that you could even just web link into, hey, I'm going to look at this factory. Where's this wood coming from? Oh, okay. I don't support that. I think we need the certification, but if we are going to be really responsible, we could have that. The technology is there. Exactly. And I think quite a lot of apps actually do exist. When I go and buy cosmetics sort or of drugstore items, I actually use my little scanner and it does exactly what's in the product and how well it does compared to other products on environmental and health-wise sustainability. I think it's also worth emphasizing that some labels aren't focused on specific aspects of a value chain, like fair trade or energy saving, but some actually focus on the entire company. So they're not product facing, they're actually about certification of the entire company. And the one I'm thinking of is, of course, B Corp. B stands for benefits, corporations. The idea is that a company in its economic, social and environmental dealings is actually good for us, good for the world. Eventually, we create a B economy, a benefit economy. And some of the bigger companies actually have gotten the certification. And because you mentioned the qualitative aspect, so it's an in or out. You have to get a certain number of points in order to get the label. Then within that, you have to be transparent about how far you are, how many cores, how many points you actually got. And it's not a one-off thing either. You get this and then you have to keep proving that you're actually still doing things in a sustainable way. So that's one of the labels that I would encourage listeners to look out for. Yeah, it takes a lot of work to be a consumer these days. <laughs> it's worth it in the long run. So we've been talking about some of the challenges, but something inspired you to join this field. So just share with us some of your personal memories about the beauty and wonder of the natural world. Oh my God, where to start? I mean... Nature just makes my, my mind calm down. It gives me energy. It helps me focus on what's really important. And I indulge in nature with all my senses very actively, very consciously. And I really feel it does things to me that no app or beautiful piece of art or beautiful piece of interior design. And I, I say this being an absolute passionate person for interior design. And we have enough studies, of course, to show that I'm not the only one and, and how important nature is for your not only for your physical health but also for your mental health but this is something i want to leave people with that you know, if, if you notice that being in nature makes you feel more stable happy healthy that's not a coincidence it's because there's really this balance that our forefathers knew about already that we had to keep this we are actually we are part of nature it's not nature versus us we are part of it and i think this is really really important yes and as you think about some teachers or life lessons that were important to you you, what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? So everyone carries wisdom. So I wouldn't flag one specific teacher or philosophy because I think different philosophies and teaching also touch you at different parts of your life. But I would recommend to young people to always dig deeper, to come with a very open mind, to never stop their learning journey. And to really listen to people, even if they're very different from you, if perhaps they aren't that educated or not as educated as you, there's so many amazing insights that I've been receiving from people that were very different from me. And perhaps as a very young person, I would have not listened to. Thank you, Alice Schmidt, for your insights on how we can break down silos and achieve just transition in public and private sector and for helping us understand the sustainability puzzle. We all live on one planet. We Call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet and Future Cities podcast.
Thank you so much, Mia. It was a pleasure. One Plant Podcast is supported by the Yann Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Marley Hinchberger with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interview producer on this podcast was Marley Hinchberger. Digital media coordinator is Phoebe Browse. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this program. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be a part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.